Good evening. Oh, come on, guys. This is Boots Riley here. Good evening. Thank you. I love the forced applause. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. That's the best kind. Well, you've been forcing people to educate themselves anyway, so we'll get into that. Um, so, uh, welcome. Thank you. My name is Chris Denson. I host an interview series called Innovation Crush uh, here on behalf of Annapurna, where I currently serve as their innovator in residence. Yay. And uh, Booth, hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes. Um, so, we're just going to talk a little bit and then get into the soundtrack. We are here at the uh, Sonos home. So one more round of applause for Sonos, because this is an amazing space. I've been two-stepping all night long since I got here two hours ago, so I may, I may, I may get, be a little exhausted by the time we uh, get through this. Um, so the movie's out in theaters now. The soundtrack is available almost as we speak. So you guys are getting, like, minutes uh, to the finish line before this is actually out and about yeah. in the world. I'm interested. How does it feel? About the movie or the soundtrack? How do you both? feel? I'm tired. <laughs> um, it's, you know, besides even the schedule, because I, I told Annapurna, like, fill up my schedule. Just I, you, I get one chance to do this, so I'm, I would need to be everywhere promoting this as much as possible. And they did and they, exactly They that. did, yeah. And, um, but besides that, then it's hard to sleep when I do have the time to sleep because... Now everything's so much social media, like that time I'm sleeping could be a time I'm promoting this movie. And so, you know, I'll, I'll wake up like, you know, crack of dawn and can't go back to sleep. So I might as well get online and promote the movie. Well, uh, let's, let's continue doing that and then we'll let you do some rest. <laughs> um, so one of the things that stuck out to me um, was this word absurdist. Um, when I, when I'm going to read a quote from you. It's an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing. It's called Sour to Bother You. Um, but I just kind of honed in on that word absurdist because you don't see that aligned with film and entertainment at, mm. at all. If, mm. you know? um, so what's the Boots Riley definition of absurdist in this context? Well, I think it's uh, that I'm exaggerating things, but not in the sense that they're untrue. But anytime you, you put forward an analysis of something, you're exaggerating in the sense that you're shaving away the other parts that aren't important to what you're talking about to highlight a contradiction. And, you know, that's what an, an analysis is, is here are the forces working against each other. And that's, that's a form of exaggeration uh, because you're not talking about all these little things, but it's a necessary right. thing. And uh, this is something where I, I exaggerate contradictions so that um, it highlights them. And uh, yeah, so, so and sometimes that might mean taking things out to the next level to, to you know, in, in length or in focus or any of those things. Or people become horses. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got to put spoiler alert on the top of this um, broadcast. <laughs> it's been an interesting journey because, you know, um, Sorry to Bother You was also the, the title of an album. You had written the script before. Um, that inspired, you know, the, the, an album. Then that also led you to a, a book, right? And so just kind of like walk us through the journey of getting here because I think there's also, in my mind, there's like a a branding thing, right? When a creative person where you're known for music, suddenly you go like, I want to do a film. Mm -hmm. It's a six plus year journey to get yeah. here, right? Like, so yeah. walk us through what, what that path was. So 2011, I started writing it. I uh, finished it beginning of 2012. Uh, wrote, made a, uh, an album to try to get some buzz about it. Um, but it almost maybe backfired because you know, it's reinforcing that I'm a musician with a script. And that's the last script you want to read, is a musician's script. Like, you know, like, the, okay, you're a musician, you want to make a movie. Of, of course you do. You also want a clothing line and a chain of shoe stores, whatever. Wing stops. Yeah, and um, so the, the quality is suspect. And so although I had built up some contacts through the music, 
maybe even doing that album made it just more reinforced that it's a musician's movie or whatever or something. So, um, so yeah, it took some time and we, we had to put out the album and, uh, and, and tour it. And pretty soon it's 2014 and I ran, run into Dave Eggers, uh, who's a writer, a novelist, and also has a publishing house called McSweeney's. And I was going to put it out on the internet by then because I didn't think I was going to get it made. But I wanted, because I was like, if I put it out on the internet, maybe at least it could be something that just 20 years from now, people would be like, oh, yeah, you know, Boots Riley made a, wrote a movie one, one time. And um, I asked him to read it to give me some notes so that it could be as tight as possible. He read it and said what he said since then, right. which was uh, publicly, he said is that it was one of the un best unproduced screenplays he'd ever read. So he published it as its own paperback book um, and, and bound and packaged it with the quarterly, which went out to 10 or 20,000 people in 2014. And that reinvigorated my fight to get it made. And I joined SF Film as a filmmaker in residence. Then in 2015, I applied and got into the uh, screen, uh, Sundance Screenwriters Lab. Um, then in, in 2016, did the Sundance Directors Lab. And uh, little by little, it kind of, you know, we, I built up some, uh, you know, so, some, some, uh, authenticity points and some some things that made people think maybe they should you know click on the pdf when right. i send it to them <laughs> so i would imagine along that journey and you've talked about this before is the, this balance of self-doubt and those just indicators to keep going you know what was what what did you do with this i wasn't saying it was self-doubt it was just uh thank you for the correction it was just uh <laughs> Uh, and an uh, you know an idea of whether it could get made, whether I could get it funded or not. Right. Um, not that I didn't think it was a good movie, and I'm not even saying that like in the sense of like some ego sort of thing. I I'm just saying that it was something. Uh, I knew that it was a movie that I hadn't seen before, and that other folks hadn't seen before, and that had something to say, and also was funny. I knew those things, but I didn't know that I Absolutely. could find somebody that would fund it, especially with me directing it. So switching gears to why we're all here, right? The music. I, I think in the films, uh, in the music side, right? You know, you listen to um, the Coop Library of Music, and you hear so many different influences from funk to punk, even I, I, I feel like. Um, and obviously those influences, even Stevie, and I know you spent some time in Detroit, my hometown. Um, but um, I went to Hampton Elementary. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, I went to go lately. Okay. I, I was only five, so I just know where I went. I knew it. <laughs> You're like, you, you, you know, I knew, the address? The, I knew the stuff they make you remember just in case you get lost. I, you I live basics, on Stobo so. Street. I live yeah, on yeah. Stople Street. Do you know that street? And you survived. So that's, a, yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's yeah. another important piece. Yeah. But Oakland was no joke either. Um, but obviously there's these geographical and cultural influences that have kind of influenced your music. Um, from the film side, what were those inputs, uh, you know, from um, an inspiration standpoint? Yeah. Uh, let's see. There's a filmmaker named Emir Kustarika um, out of former Yugoslavia who... Uh, a, a movie, there's some movies that he did, Black Cat, White Cat, Underground, and Time of Gypsies. These movies are slightly racist, but they're good. And I love a good slight racist. <laughs> uh, Any good slight racist in the house? Yeah, exactly. Raise your hand, please. And uh, they, there's an energy to them. And and I, I just the way they move and all of that, that, that that's... that's really in there and there's other beautiful elements to it. Um, Michael Cimino, uh who did Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate what he does with scale and crowds and the way you move through the crowd as the the way the film moves through the crowd things like that um, uh, Paul Schrader Mishima there's actually a, a scene in 
sorry to bother you, that I pretty much just stole um, from him, or, you know, it's an homage to him. But um, Better word. That was good. Yeah. And, you freestyled uh, that one. That was... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's where, when Cassius is really being uh, captivated by the golden elevator... And uh, there's a scene from Mishima where in, in the section called uh, Temple of the Golden Pavilion where uh, the main character is looking at this golden pavilion and there's this uh, trombone shot, which is a, a zoom lens on a dolly that changes, that the, the keeps the, the character in focus and it makes the, uh, makes the background compress. And so... Um, you know, I wanted that same feeling right there, and uh, so we did that. that. You know, it's in the trailer and all right. that. But, uh, you know, like a lot of good shots, they're stolen. And um, let's see, there's a, a Sergei Parjanov, uh, Color of Pomegranates, and the composition that he d does with the wides there, which is also, that was like stolen a lot by... Uh, Jodorowsky for Holy Mountain. So those two movies um, really had some influence. Now those are like, I think about those because, and there's a series of movies by this guy, Lindsay Anderson, uh, If, uh, Oh Lucky Man and Hotel Britannica. And um, so these are movies that I like had to dig like in a, in a hip hop sort of way, like digging through the crates. And so I think about them more, but then there are some more, there are some more known directors that, sure. that like Kubrick definitely is a, is a big influence on me. Um, there's uh, Michelle Gondry and uh, Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman, all that, that group of folks. Um, so Cohen brothers, Paul Thomas Anders. I mean, I don't yeah, know. No, it's a, it's where an amazing it list. <laughs> but uh, no, that's, that's, that's an amazing set of inputs, right? And uh, you can tell you're like a film nerd uh, of, of sorts. Um, and then suddenly you had to do the reverse, right? You, you had a script, you created an uh, album. Now you have a film, and now you need to create a soundtrack. How did you translate, you know, at least to create what's been called the voice of the film? So, so, there, is, so there are two musical worlds in Sorry to Bother You. Um, one is the score that's actually made by tune yards. And the score is all the stuff that the characters can't hear, right? It's the voice of the movie in that sense, it, that it's commenting on something. It's uh, leading you down the path. Uh, um, and then there's the soundtrack, which is the stuff that the characters can hear. It's playing in the bar, it's playing out of cars, it's, you know, um, parties, wherever. Um, the, the only time we do break that rule once, which is with kind of the theme song of the movie, which is O-Y-A-H-Y-T-T, -T, oh yeah, all right, hell yeah, that's tight. And um, I was going to ask you about that. Thank you. You helped yeah. me. <laughs> and uh, that's, the only, that's the only song on the soundtrack that the characters can't hear. It plays during the credits and a couple times through, throughout the film. And, uh, but yeah, so that... We did that while I, so so I co-produced that with my boy uh, the, the 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 soundtrack album with my boy uh, Damian Gallegos and um, we did that you know while we were editing the movie you know and uh, so editing the movie with Terrell Gibson uh, down here in L.A. for four days a week. He had one day where I was out of his hair, one day a week where I, where I would be able to be out of his hair. And then I'd come four days a week, and we'd edit for, you know, 10 hours a day at least. And it's a beautiful head of hair, by the way, just to be out of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, uh, and, and then on the weekends, and the, I'd go back up to the Bay Area, and we'd make stuff. We, we were making stuff before the movie, but then once I shot the movie, there were thing, ideas that I thought would work, but they just didn't work. And so we, we just, the cool thing is we got to tailor it to it. But 
But the the bad thing for me is that I usually obsessed for a long time right. over albums. Um, although, like a, some of our most popular songs, like Five Million Ways to Kill a CEO, that was like <laughs> five hours from conception to to finish. Um, then another song called Everything. Um, I'd had the music and... We needed an extra song on the album before I left to get on the plane to go master it and wrote it and recorded it in, you know, the vocals at least, wrote it and recorded it in 20 minutes Um, while, you know, while I was writing the engineer, like, did a rough mix and that's what's on the album. All right, don't don't give it all away. Uh, Well, that's an old one. Yeah. You guys ready to hear some 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 of the music? Um, so I made Jamal over here. Hi, Jamal. All right. Um, we're going to, the first one we're going to do is, I can't do the acronym, but I, I will say the letters. O-Y-A-H-Y-T-T. Which stands for, oh yeah, all right, hell yeah, that's tight. And by the way, just so you guys know, you're only going to hear 30 seconds of these songs because we're recording this for the show. So, um, but then tomorrow you'll be able to. <laughs> well, to tonight. Tonight. A couple hours. Yes. All right. Here we go. Jamal. So, um, so, so walk us through that. Cause that's, this is a song that's very prominent in the film and, you know, even at the end credits and, you know, why is this sort of the focal point musically, you know, for, for the launch? I mean, we didn't make it thinking it was necessarily the focal point. It was just, that's the one that, that was driving in it. And it, 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 it uh, really just captured an energy. Like a lot of the Coos music has changed, uh, through performance. And so sometimes we make an album where I'm basing it off of how can we make the best show possible? And that sort of energy that comes, that's this sort of pulsing energy um, that really works um, in a live setting. And then something, you know, sometimes I'm thinking about a party or whatever, but that's like a good combination of it. This song, um, actually, we uh, we wrote it with uh, my boy Ryan Parks, who's a bartender at the bar that that I go to sometimes. Um, And uh, he's a good guitar player as well. And so just one night came over and was trying to really kind of got into this, uh, to what they call uh, British freak rock. And um, there was kind of like a a movement that was kind of, you know, obviously all that stuff is based on like soul music and R&B, but like that where they were doing stuff that kind of had a little bit more oomph to it. Mm. And um, so we were kind of going for something that was like that. And but it ends up being, in my mind, kind of like a Sly and the Family Stone sort of a, a aggressive thing and you know I don't know it just felt like the inner like I wanted to make a movie that had um that that had some that 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 felt rebellious in aesthetic as well like um in the sense that it wasn't clean it wasn't smooth and you know and 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 represented like how people feel and this, the music for this felt like that. Well, yeah, and that's a great point because I think you, you talk a lot about just sort of like people being walking contradictions. Um, is that reflected in this song? You know, especially with Lakeith, his character being kind of central to this, this particular track. Um, was, where was that like emotional connection to what that character is experiencing? This um, was more, this connection was more of the general feel of like why I'm doing the movie, Mm. right? 
So that's one reason it's not even in that world. It's just, it's the one that they can't hear. Um, and so this is more about, yeah, it's, it's about the kind of, it's, it's kind of like the, the middle finger that the, that the whole film has, you I know. I love it. Um, all right. Jamal, you ready? All right. Uh, what the girl motherfucking want to do? All one word, by the way, just so you know. So, so you spell check. I we all jacked up tomorrow. So I made this demo in 2003, which was the first thing that I ever was singing on, and it's like a fault was like I'm singing falsetto on it and all this kind of stuff. And early 2003 made it, and uh, but then uh, Dre came out. Andre 3000 came out with Hey uh, and all that, and I was like, oh, I can't put this out. It's going to sound like I'm on the bandwagon. And um, so I never put it out. But, like, last year I had this laptop that I was uh, throwing out, and I was like, no, let me fire this up and see if I have something on there that's worth saving. And um, I found this MP3 of this song that I had done. It was just demo, not really even mixed at all called What the Girl Motherfucking Want to Do. And, uh, and it's, it's about just it's the, the, uh, the, and the chorus was like a demo chorus. Like I wasn't even done writing it. So it says, this the part where we sang on top, thought it was, but it ain't going to stop. Want to keep it with you, but the girl finna do what the girl motherfucking want to do. And, um, Ladies. and uh, it's, it's just about it. A woman leaving her man because he's keeping her down. You know, he's like not letting her, that relationship is not letting her grow. Anyway, um, so Janelle Monet is singing on another song on the album. And I played it for her, you know, during the time while she was working on it. And she was like, I want to sing on that. <laughs> And I, and I was like, but I don't have the multi-tracks. We got to turn in the album tomorrow. Um, it, all I got is this MP3 that's not even a mix. It's just a, you know, and it's made in 2003, so it's not even a quality of the MP3s right. that might be now. <laughs> and she was like, that's cool. I'll just sing over that. So this is her singing over me. Um on this and it's like one of my favorite songs on the album and uh and and you know so I did like a little intro at the talked at the beginning but yeah it's called what the girl motherfucking want to do all right here we go <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so I love the fact that, you know, a lot of, so, uh, there's a theory that some of the best innovation comes from constraint, right? You said the album was due tomorrow. You had an old file. This wasn't supposed to be something that you were doing. So just walk us through, the, like, the process of collaborating with Janelle Monet under those circumstances, you know? I mean, you know, she's, like, way more professional than I am. And <laughs> so, you know, I just kind of let her her do her thing and there's not much you're going to say about that. So for me, you know, I wanted what she already does, so I didn't really have to give her much direction. And for instance, in this, she, like, she's, it sounds to me like she's singing, doing... Uh, imitation of me if I could sing. That's what I felt. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Exactly, yeah honestly, like I, was, I listened to it earlier, and that's exactly what I felt. I was like, yeah. this is not like the Janelle Monae I'm used to. Yeah. So the fact that she she made that creative decision, that wasn't like a collaborative thing. No, I was like, we got Janelle Monae singing on the song. <laughs> that's a good tweet for when you yeah. can't sleep. Um, so uh, let's get into the next one, Jamal. Anitra's uh, Basement Tapes. 
That's you singing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sonically, that song does something for me, you know. Is and I think across the board, you know, was there sonically a tone or a feeling? Uh, you talked about "fuck you" with the first one, but you know, was yeah, there a feel you were you were going for? So um, I just got this omnichord, which is just this instrument and kind of lets you cheat. A little bit because it just has the names of the chords and different buttons and so you can kind of mess around and and um and so then I, I hooked it up to this Juno keyboard and I was just kind of messing around making chord uh progressions and um honestly there's this feeling that I get what's that song that they play in a breakfast club that um Pop quiz, anybody? Breakfast that uh, is like almost a theme song of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not the same chords or anything, but the key, the the the, the keyboard texture like made me th- the the feeling that I get from that is you know, and a lot of times what I do is I'll make music just non intellectually like that I like, and then figure out what that feeling means for me, what it's connected to in my real world. And so this, so I'd done the chords and then Damien did the bass and guitar and we kind of had this sort of feeling going. And it was, to me, like that same feeling like made, was about the yearning for connection. Mm. And just so happens to be maybe because it's the same writer writing the song as wrote the movie that there's some of that in the movie like a yearning to like for things to mean something and um so my mother died a few years ago and um so and I and I found these this box of cassette tapes um and she was a partier my mother partied a lot. She was a person. She always had a boyfriend twenty years younger than her. She, um, you know, she wasn't like the grandma type. Like, can you watch the kids? <laughs> no, you know that's Sunday, and you know I party on Saturday, so it's gonna be a problem. Um, so, but you know, she was really trying to connect. And you know, like I probably met a lot of famous musicians, like, through my mother. Anyway, so this is not really about my mother, but kind of. It's about I found these tapes and um, what it what it made me. Like, the, the chorus is, I just want to smoke a tailor with you, baby. I just want to uh, see you dance across the living room floor uh, with them tapes my mama left in the basement. She was happy when the when the music made. The, I forget what it says, but anyway, some. But the point is, is that um, you know, like I I take something and see what it makes me feel. But so the verses are just about that want for connection and how dancing, and music, and you know, is a is a part of that. And that want for connection is also like why I think uh, people, you know, feel good about being involved in movements and things like that um, is feel connected to people, feel connected to history, um, all those sorts of things. I guess with that emotion, first of all, I love your mother. Like, <laughs> she is, uh, sorry for your loss, but that's an amazing woman. Um, you know, if you had to nail down a, a core like emotion or a statement that you think "Sorry to Bother You" makes, mm. what is that? Uh, that would be me trying to make a sound bite, but it's not. 
I I don't I don't like art like that. You know what I'm saying? Like in the sense, like, and I've definitely participated in that. You can say that, but I purposely put a lot in there. Like, so what's the core statement or emotion that's in Song of Solomon or in uh, Hundred Years of Solitude or Midnight's Children? You know, there's. You know, there's a, a some of that whittling down in our art. Some of it is because it's artful, and you can do that. You, there's something good about um, being uh, succinct or being, uh, you know, which I'm not, and uh, in uh, or or being sparse. But a lot of it is just to do with marketing and how the how not the the people but the perception of what the people will want by companies that are selling them things um think and so we have these structures and these ways we do things and so i wanted to make a movie that felt full felt messy mm. right felt like a collage like um you know, Romare Beard and or Jacob Lawrence, or you know, or any number of African artists that have all these colors laid on top of them, and um, and or like punk, you know, where there's this there's this thing, there's a thing that that people go for that's kind of like this aspiration aspirational thing that sometimes exists even in the black community. Uh, I mean, not even, that that I've noticed exists in the black community, which is like, so for instance, with our music, because I'm from Oakland, it's a relatively small town, even though it's in a bigger metropolitan area, it's like 400,000 people. So you get known from there and you become, um, you become a like a representative. And when I say representative, I mean, to some people, it's like you're an elected representative. You are supposed to represent them. And let me talk to you about how you can represent me better. Right. And, you know, like, so as an artist, it feels, but, but I, I feel that and I understand that. And, 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 and I'm glad for that. But in some of these conversations, people be like, you know, what's that shit you making, man? You need to come with some clean beats. Right. And so clean, sparse. Right. All that is very much associated with success. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's what we've seen before. And so, I mean, when we think about it, like clean lines, like you have very expensive car or whatever. It's right. not all, you know, it's like. <laughs> well, we got right? two, we got two more to get into. OK. So because um, the weekend's talking. coming. Everybody ready for the weekend? One person. Okay, cool. We hanging out. I'm hanging out with you. Where are you going after this? Um, yeah, I'm following you. Hey, Saturday night. Jamal. So that felt good also. Okay. Cool. But, <laughs> but one of the things I'm noticing just as sort of a theme or just a, a, a repeated element is sort of like layered vocals, right? It's, it's always sort of a group chant feeling in, in a lot of the, the, the songs. Is that deliberate? And, you know, and if so, or yeah, first of all, is it deliberate? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not really that thought out. Like I try to go outward in, I mean, inward out. And um, but it definitely I think one of the reasons I like it is that it's a lot sounds like a lot of people. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I think art and movements 
do is fight loneliness. You know, I think that it makes you feel connected to the moment, connected to other people. You know, you know, other people might be listening to this or like it or, you know, you feel, you, you know, it, it doesn't feel just like a letter from your significant other to you. It feels like somebody yelling out at the stars and um, and you or it might even feel like you yelling out at the stars. And uh, so, yeah, I like the feeling uh, that there's a lot of people. That song, uh, the chorus is uh, by Tune Yards. So by that's Meryl from no Tune Yards singing that. Yeah, that's all I got. And um, t- Tune Yards, like as I said, did the score to the music, to the movie. All right, one more, uh, Monsoon. So this is uh, okay. If you can introduce it, if you could feel free. Uh, yeah, we I, since we're only doing thirty seconds, it won't get to it. But this is also featuring Killer Mike. Just fast forward to the Killer Mike part. I love that Killer Mike cameo. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> now he, like to me, Killer Mike is like your your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, right? Like he's that dude that could just go in and this song, you know, in in many ways, kind of feels like a warning. And that's just my interpretation. I don't know if that's what you intended, but you know, like there's a there's something coming. And then you have Killer Mike on there. Um, just walk us through some of the the you know the thinking, the the design thinking uh, of this track. Well, I mean. It's kind of just talking about the storm that you don't know is there. And uh, I think both of our verses talk about it in a different way. Mine focuses on just me sitting there drinking, but getting ready to do something other than that. And uh, and his, uh, yeah, they, they, they both are about that hidden thing that is boiling and um, is reflecting on the other things that are happening and it possibly moving into action. Um, can I ask you something randomly personal? Yeah. Uh, you told me earlier that your, your thumbs don't bend mm-hmm. and you're born that way. Um, see? <laughs> I was teasing about how he was holding his pen and then he was like, oh, my thumb, and I felt like an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, uh, so, how does that affect it does it even you know uh, at any point did it affect your creativity you know if you're playing keys or you know an instrument mm. um and your approach to music i don't and- know i'm just i'm not good at any of those things anyway so <laughs> i can't tell what it is you know like i'm just good enough to like know enough so that i can talk to people about it that do it well like a real director <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm going to shut up for a second. I, I would love to, uh, you know, for the audience to ask a few questions, um, depending on how much time we have. So, uh, anybody, anybody, party girl, you good? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm still trying to figure it out. I think everybody is. Um, so sorry, just to restate the question, it's just like, what is the, 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 I guess, the focal point of Oakland creativity right now? How's that evolving? Yeah, like what's making it happen? I don't know. I think uh, a confluence of things. Like, so, you know, I was able to get this happening because. What well, well, first, you know, just over the last 20 years, like Oakland was 
a hotbed for music and for independent people kind of hustling and making things happen uh, while at the same time, you know, some things like blew up commercially. And so all that time you've got random things happening um, and, and people are intertwined. Like uh, David, like, like when I met David Diggs at Sundance what what I thought was my first time meeting him, I was like, hey, good to finally meet you, you know, after all this time. And he was like, what are you talking about? I was, I took your class, like he, I had this uh, art and organizing workshop that he used to take while, and when he was 14 and probably didn't have the beard and all that. So didn't know what he, <laughs> he didn't realize it was the same person. But the the thing is, is that people have been making movies in Oakland for a long time. Honestly, a lot of them have been bad, you know. Um, but people have been, like, figuring out how to get, um, you know, get resources, you know, get out there, just start filming and making a movie. Um, we haven't had, you know, we don't have the industry here, so people are just figuring it, have been figuring it out for themselves and, um, and like, imitating sometimes whatever they see but there's there hasn't been a group of at least among people of color or black folks people a group of people to kind of like hone that and make that happen but i think um yeah i i actually don't have any answer for how that's happening i do know that if we want to keep it going in the bay area we're going to have to get cheaper rent because <laughs> Because <laughs> the thing is, is that artists, to, to have a real artist scene, you have to have cheap rent. Otherwise, for people to stay there, they're going to have to work 16 hours a day, whatever. Or you get people that have some talent and then they got to use it for somebody else. And all they're doing is making commercials or something like that. And so, you know, the future of the Oakland film scene depends on rent control well to that point you 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 were interviewed in uh wired right and uh, which i thought was an interesting place for you to show up you know because it talks about the tech scene that's popping up and i think even at one point they talked about how uber bought a building for whatever 123 million dollars never moved in and then sold the building you know two years later um you know and then you spoke a little bit about gentrification right mm -hmm. uh, and i think a lot of that edutainment comes through in you know your socio-political views i'll say um so you know have you thought about like that what can you do about the rent control issue as boots or as you know or us as a community um well there has to be a, a movement that makes it happen in that case um you know, it is like a, it, that. That is the one thing. That's the one fix that could have to do with um, that. That could have to do with making uh, an initiative that calls for real rent control. The initiatives that have come up have been mitigated by people thinking, uh, worrying about what the public will accept, and so they've been kind of halfway. So it needs to be like some real rent control. And even then, you like the prices in right now, they're real expensive. But five years from now, if they're locked in um, as they are now, that, that won't seem as expensive. Um, but to even get there, there could be stuff like eviction defense where where groups of folk, and this is this is something that happens where groups of folks um, help someone who's being evicted to just move their furniture in back in when, when the police are trying to move them out. Right. Um, things like that that bring awareness around that and and also um, make um, folks uh, want to get an initiative in, 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 out there and and and, prom and promote it. So that's if we're just talking about how do we in any place, how do you make sure there's a scene that where people are able to create and just experiment and try things, you know, uh, because when things are so desperate, what happens is people are like what I'm making right now has to commercially win. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and so they make choices that are corny because <laughs> because they're cliched because they're based on what what they think is sold and not based on like what they think is better well stated you know well stated um another question How do you remain authentic and still reach mainstream audiences? I mean, I think in my case, I've been uh, dealing with that question for 20 years. So I had some ideas about that. But, um, I th you know, that experience at Sundance helped me um, with that because I went to Sundance with a script that was already written and had already been published. McSweeney's and um, there was a controversial script like you we had there were there were masters of what they do that were there in screenwriting and novelists things like that and a lot of them liked it but some of them didn't and there would be and I would be getting at, and they would be arguing with each other and I'd be getting contradictory advice from them, and they're all, you know, they're all masters of what they do, and 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 that contradictory advice and them arguing about it made me think. Wait a minute, there's no answer. <laughs> like nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. There's no rule that you can give you that that says this is how you make something good. Because even these folks that have made these, you know, hits or like classic films or you know kind of like they have just an idea and some and so I was like wow okay so if there is nobody knows what they're doing it's wide open mm -hmm. like there's no rule I can make a new rule and so that gave you know like the idea that you said like how do you reach a mainstream audience um, I think, you know, that, that all of that has to do with how much do you know the audience and how do you know, and, and some people for how they know the audience is because they feel like they know the audience because they watch the same stuff that that audience watches. But I think what Sorry to Bother You is proving is that people want something different than what they've already been watching. And um, so, like you have to have a connection with like i've had for me i feel like i've from being an organizer and then being an artist who is very intertwined with my actual neighborhoods that i live in and community like in a physical sense talking to people like uh you know i'm often like also studying like what is it that people are thinking about? What are they talking about? And um, for so so I have an opinion that's based on these conversations of like what motivates people. What are they that's worried about? That is that is beautifully stated. Um, so I think we have time for one more question, young lady. Yes. Pain point? Give us more of a deep dive of pain point you experienced making this film. Um, no, it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to think about it that way. Um, there were a lot of people that, I mean, this, this is the, the, the part that you hear in a lot of stories, a lot of people that did not believe in it. Um, and it wasn't for, sometimes it wasn't for anything malicious. It was just like, this is what I know or what I've been told the world is. This is what you're trying to do. It doesn't fit into this. 
that's not going to work. And uh, folks that, you know, were on my team, maybe just not having my back or whatever. And, um, you know, they're going off of just what they can have. I mean, with this film also, um, there were a couple people, a couple producers on it that were like, you know, and we had like eight or nine producers or something like that. But there were a couple that were like, um, you know, you got too much stuff in this. Take that out. Take all that out. Strip it down to this. Matter of fact, um, write a defense of every single scene and everything that's in the movie. And so I spent days writing this like thing going scene by scene of what it all meant and why all these things needed to be in there and what they did and all that kind of stuff and how when you took out one thing that made this other thing really mess up. So that that's not a a pain, but I mean it's a a thing that that you know you're doing something new and you're always going to have something like that where you have to push because by it being something new and it being different, it's going to sometimes new and different feels wrong, Mm -hmm. right? It can be new and different and wrong, but sometimes just because it's new and different, it's wrong. Along those lines, did you feel like you had to like side door the full movie? Because again, going back to what I read at the beginning, you know, it's an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction and telemarketing. You had to like get like spoon feed, and we see this with there's a really great set of articles with Issa Rae. And, you know, how, like, season one was what the network wanted. Season two was what I really wanted to do in the first place. Same thing with Atlanta. Um, you know, and I think there's something there about, like, what's the pitch? What's the, what's the palatable pitch? Then, you know, how do I backdoor the real, you know, essence of, of what I wanted to create? The movie that people saw is the same. Matter of fact, it's crazier than the movie if you read the 2014. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you know, so, no, I just... Kept going with it. Right. I didn't. Um, that's the that's the thing I had going for me. I couldn't be like, hey, I can deliver you this commercial movie that other people. Because then they go, I might as well get somebody else to make that movie. Right. Right. So this was there was nobody else that could make this movie because it had didn't exist anymore. I was the expert at that movie. Sorry to bother you. Now in theaters, the soundtrack is available tonight. <laughs> Tonight, it's available at nine p.m. Boots Riley. Yeah, thank you, thank you for coming.